Our text this morning as we hear from the living God and His Word is Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 22 to 35. So welcome on this third Sunday in Lent to Christ the King Anglican Church. It was our joy in the 9 a.m. service to witness the baptisms of two uh, little ones, Euphemia and Theodora, and it was indeed a joyful service. And as I commented there, the text that we come to now this third Sunday of Lent finds resonance, I think, with what we celebrated in the baptismal event this morning. We are through Lent, picking select texts from Luke. This morning now we've jumped quite a ways from where we were last week, all the way to chapter 13. Luke gives us the context for our passage now in verse 22. If you have the Bible, keep it open here for Luke so you can follow along. Verse 22, Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. That's where he's been going since, in Luke, since chapter 9, verse 51, where Luke writes, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so Jesus knows where he's going. He knows what's going to happen when he gets there. And all the time he's teaching, as we discussed last week. In fact, just before our passage begins here in chapter 13, verse 22, Luke has Jesus teaching on the kingdom of God. So look there, if you have it, at verse 18. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And he said again, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. In other words, the kingdom starts small, but it grows, it gets bigger. But just how big does it get, exactly? And someone said to him, verse 23, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Jesus, just how many of us will make it into the kingdom of God? I mean, it's one way of reading these parables on the kingdom that would emphasize that the tree that these birds could nest in was not the largest of possible trees. The the bread that would have been formed was only three loaves. One question that may have come would be, how many of us will be there? That is a question, that is who and how many would populate the world to come, that was much discussed in the Judaism of Jesus' day. And you can find examples of how that's answered with slightly different emphases. So here's one extra biblical text in which we find written 
The Most High made this world for the sake of many, but the world to come for the sake of only a few. Many have been created, but only a few shall be saved. That's 2nd Esdras 8, if you're interested. In another Jewish text, we read, All Israelites have a share in the world to come, for it is written, Thy people also shall be all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. So Jesus, which is it? Will only a few be saved? Or is it only a few Gentiles who will be saved? What say you, Jesus? And it was a loaded question, because they're always loaded questions in the Gospels when they're asked of Jesus. And as is so often the case with Jesus, the key is in very carefully reading his response. So there's three observations I want to make as we consider the response Jesus gives to this in this portion of the text before we come to the Pharisees who, who come to incite Jesus a bit. But three observations here in the response to this question. Here's the first thing to notice. Observation number one. Jesus doesn't answer the question. I don't know if you've quite thought of it that way before. But I like how one commentator puts it. Jesus refuses to speculate about matters better left to the wisdom and mercy of God. Idle speculation can only distract, hear this, can only distract men's attention from the one clear and urgent fact that the kingdom of God is present and the door open. Notice how Jesus turns the conversation around. This is very commonly Jesus' strategy. He, he redefines it, not in terms of how many will be saved, but in terms of asking, essentially, will you be saved? Verse 24, And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So this door is not so wide that just anyone may saunter casually in at your own convenience. It's a narrow opening, for some reason, we'll come to that, through which they must thrust themselves with determination. Jesus uses the image of entering through the narrow door to indicate, I'm arguing, the nature of discipleship that it's a struggle, not a stroll. Certainly, one thing is made clear, that whereas it was not uncommon for Jews to expect a universal salvation for Israel, Jesus certainly offers no comfort on that point whatsoever. <coughs> many, he says, including many of you Jews, will try to enter and will not be able how many? Jesus doesn't say. And thus does Jesus make a point that is made elsewhere in the New Testament as well. If we listen to the Apostle Paul, for example, in Romans chapter 2, verses 17 and following, Paul writes, but if you call yourself a Jew 
and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Jesus' point in part was your Jewish identity it has to make a difference or it's all for nothing and this basic idea that we've explored in the context of Galatians in the past also comes out in Jesus' parables of the kingdom right? for example in the parable of the soils when the seeds fell on three of the four soils in vain It was only the fourth soil that yielded believers. There were many professing believers who would be lost. And so the door is open but narrow. Here's the second thing to notice. Observation number two. First one, Jesus didn't answer the question they asked. Second observation, in looking at his answer that he does give, he does not say that there are many who are striving to enter in vain. He says there will be many who will seek in vain to enter after the time of salvation is past. This is really critical. Notice when it is that those trying to enter aren't able to enter. You see, Jesus isn't saying that someone genuinely seeking him in faith will be turned away. We have to read on into verse 25 to get the the frame here. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you then begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets, but he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. This is the primary picture that Jesus presents for them, that eventually the door, and it is narrow, we'll still come back to that, but eventually the narrow door shuts. And when the door is shut, if you're outside... It's too late. That's what Jesus is saying. There's a time limit on the offer of salvation. The limit comes when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door. When is that? Well, I see biblically two options for when that is. One is at the time of your death. Or two is when the Lord returns, whichever comes first. Hebrews 9, verse 27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. But this, I think, becomes the key to rightly understanding Jesus here. The door is open now. The door is open 
Now, the fact that you hear these words in your mortal flesh means you can respond if you so wish. The door is open today. It will not always be open. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now. This is the time when those who stand outside and knock, who strive, will be heard, will be served. This is the same Jesus who in Luke chapter 11, verse 10 said, For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. But there is a knocking that occurs after the time of salvation, and no amount of it will avail then. Which then takes me to the third thing I want you to notice. So number one, he doesn't really answer the question. Number two, you have to consider when it is that he says it will not be possible to enter through the closed door. And then observation number three, Notice that it is how we relate to Jesus in the present, then, that determines our entrance through the door in the future. Because for those who were outside knocking, what was it that kept them out of the kingdom once the door was shut? Notice how Jesus says it was that they had no personal relationship with the Master. Right? Twice there comes a categorical denial of relationship. Verse 25 is the first one. I do not know where you come from. And look at their response. The response of those who are outside the kingdom of God after the door has closed. Verse 26, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. They were acquainted with Jesus in some way, but it was a superficial knowledge of him. They were strangers. There's a warning there for them, and there's a warning there for us too, I'd say. I'd go so far as to say that it's possible that you and I could even eat and drink at the Lord's table. We could hear his word preached. We could even be engaged in service, in ministry, in various ways. I mean, this can look really serious. Matthew 7, verse 22 says, he says, many will come to me. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will then declare to them, because, of course, Jesus is the master who closes the door at some point. I never knew you. Depart from me. Mighty works done in Jesus' name will not save us. So they argue the point in verse 26. And what does Jesus then again say in verse 27? I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Now listen, here's the cutting edge of this text. I mean, you have to follow the sequence. The door is open now. Yes, it's narrow, but it's open for you and for everyone. Jesus is going to say it's from the north and the south and the east and the west. There's no limit on who can enter the door when it's open. 
But then secondly, one day, the door closes, at which point it will not open again. But notice how, thirdly, those whom the master knows will be inside the door before it closes. You will be. All who enter by the open door are members of God's family. But those who wait till the door is shut prove themselves strangers to him. The key question is, does the master know you? Does Jesus know you? Are you in authentic relationship with him? It's only knowing Christ through real faith that will save us, brothers and sisters. And so once again, the question is, what is faith? What is real faith? What will it mean? What will it look like? What will it mean in our lives to enter through the narrow door? That's what Jesus says we have to strive to do. Strive to do it. And there's a clue in our text of what it looks like. Because after the second time that the master says, I do not know where you come from, there's something else he says. The end of verse 27, the master says... I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Or literally, workers of injustice. So that the corollary question to my earlier one, the earlier one being, are you in authentic relationship with Jesus? The corollary question is this. Has your relationship with Jesus turned you away from evil? Because one must not only hear Jesus' teaching, one must do it. Jesus says we are to strive to enter through the narrow door. He says we must strive to do it. Make every effort. It must be sought. Faith isn't just mental assent to some data set. Faith isn't just an emotional response to the truths of the gospel. What we believe and our emotional genuineness are crucial. But Jesus makes this very clear that in the end, it's the evildoers who will be shut out of the kingdom of God. We shall not believe, brothers and sisters, we shall not enter the narrow door without lifelong effort. The Bible's full of imagery about this, and I spoke briefly to the parents and the godparents of those newly baptized ones this morning at this point. And I said, you understand, this is only the beginning. (laughs) It's the beginning of what we pray will be their lifelong pursuit of entering that narrow door, their lifelong faith, their lifelong striving in the words of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. 1 Peter chapter 1, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. 1 John 5, 
Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Romans 6, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Psalm 119, verse 32, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. (coughs) Galatians 5, verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. What does Paul say in another place? (laughs) Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you. Look at it takes effort to follow Jesus Christ. Can I make that point? I can make that point in Lent, can't I, of all times? It takes effort to follow Jesus Christ in our lives. It does. There are battles and choices every day. And how we live matters. If you looked, if you wanted to, look earlier in chapter 13 of Luke, there's the parable of the barren fig tree. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Fruitfulness, figs on the tree, striving to enter the narrow door. The stakes are high. We're at verse 28 of Luke 13 now. In that place, verse 28 of our text, in that place, if the door is closed and you're not inside, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The only time Luke uses that phrase. Matthew has it all over the place. The weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And when Moses encountered God at the burning bush, God identified himself as the God of, I, of, of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. These are the progenitors of Israel. They are the representatives of the greatest members of Israel. They're the cornerstone of faithful Israel. And Jesus says there are many in Israel who will be cast out and not be part of glorified Israel. And there will be great sorrow and fierce rage in that place. But there's more. Verse 29, and people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. (laughs) Meaning what? Meaning that as Jesus speaks to them, he warns them, there are unbelievers among you in Israel who will be cast out. 
but there are believers among the Gentiles who will sit down with the three patriarchs and the redeemed house of Israel because they belong to Christ. And so they are, in Paul's words from Galatians 3, verse 29, Abraham's offspring. Remember that? Heirs according to promise. Which is why some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. That's verse 30 of our text. Because Abraham's going to be sitting next to the Gentile man or woman from Toronto who lived in the year 2018 and came to faith in Jesus and entered that narrow door. Maybe it'll be you. Sitting next to Abraham at the table in the kingdom of God. And I mean that they really will. It's Isaiah chapter 25 that stands behind this Lucan scene. You don't need to go there, but it's Isaiah 25 that's behind this scene. It'll be real food, and these are real people we're talking about. Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Brothers and sisters, I'm looking forward to that. (laughs) Let me tell you. But did you hear how Isaiah put it? The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, all peoples. Which means then, if you think about it, Surely the narrow door is open to everyone. Christianity is radically inclusive. You can be anybody and have any background and be rich or poor and have done anything and it doesn't matter. The door is open for you if you'll go through it. It's just that many don't, or won't, which is why it's narrow. It's not narrow because God is keeping you or anyone else out. It's narrow because many people will not do what's required to go through it. Because to go through that door... To seek and to ask and to knock in the way that Jesus promises you will be received. To go through that door in the end requires our humility and our repentance and our moral determination. You have to run the race. Running, of course, by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life forgiven at the cross, filled with the Spirit, running the race. It's only those who are in relationship with the living God who do this. Because that relationship with the master is what delivers you from the evil doing, right? And of course then, it's all only through Jesus. John 17, verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you. Hear that language? I do not know where you come from. That they know you, John says, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's not stated this way in Luke here, but I would submit for your thinking, based on what I've just said, that you could talk about Jesus Christ himself as being the door. 
That is, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his pouring out of the Holy Spirit. That is the way by which we can be in the kingdom of God, brothers and sisters. That is the power we need to strive to run the race, to finish the course. And so Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He has to. He knows full well what's coming. He wants to bring this all about. Verse 31, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. That sounds like friendly advice, but it wasn't. Herod used the Pharisees, probably, to pass on the threat to Jesus, hoping that he'd be frightened into going south to Judea. The Pharisees liked that, because if Jesus could be manipulated into traveling into Judea, he'd fall to the Sanhedrin. So Jesus knows all this. Verse 32, and he said to them, Go and tell that fox which is at at least just an expression of utter contempt. Go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Now, right on the surface, Jesus just means that I continue to do my normal ministry for this time, for a short time, and then I'll be finished. I'll do what I set out to do. I'll do it at my own pace and my own schedule. But how can you not help but hear the echoes of what will happen to him in Jerusalem in that? And then verse 33 is his response to the Pharisees. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. It's Jerusalem that has the monopoly on killing the prophets, and on this highest occasion, the city will not be deprived. Jesus knew he was the lamb who was to be sacrificed there. He's like an all-knowing Isaac who carries the wood and the knife on his back, knowing where and who was the offering. And as he goes on, it is his love for others that drives him. Listen to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 and following. As you think about these concepts of entering the door into the kingdom of God, listen to Hebrews 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. What do you think he's praying about? Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal life to all who obey him. He became the source of eternal life to all who obey him. That sounds like being known by the master. That sounds like entering the narrow door. That sounds like why Jesus was going to Jerusalem. And so our passage ends with Jesus thinking of his people, thinking of those who are his, Lamenting over what will come. Verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. I've never seen this, but I read in more than one place this week that that's potentially imagery 
that's taken from real agricultural context where when there would be a fire that would sweep through a field or a, or, or a farm or an agricultural setting, there have been observed the case where hens not being able to save their chicks will literally bring some of their chicks under their wings, cover them, and be killed in order to save one or two of their chicks under their wings. Like that, This is the kind of imagery that is being used. How often I would have gathered children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There will be an ultimate day where those words are spoken. But we'll hear those words again in just a few weeks first, won't we? When those who are lining the road into Jerusalem will shout those words from Psalm 118, ironically so. Jesus means to say there remains time. The door remains open. There's time for some in Israel to repent and return to God. And Jesus' prophetic pronouncement here echoes yet one other part of that psalm. Psalm 118, verses 19 and 20, which says, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. Oh, if only they could see that their prayer has been answered. That the gate has been opened. But that one cannot simply stroll through it. And it will not remain open forever. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.